and uh, we prepare ourselves. I just would call you to think about what we have just sung together for these la- this last song. This is the song that we want to zero in this morning on. What child is this? Particularly that chorus. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him law, bring him praise. The babe, the son of Mary. The interesting um, providence that I had here just a few weeks ago was to teach our youth on this very topic. Um, Little did I know that that would help me in some ways for today's sermon. And one of the questions I asked those uh, youth that are in the room that night was to consider for a moment what kind of king we all long for. What's the difference between what we might argue as a good king and what is a poor king or a bad king or an evil king? And of course, there were a number of things that were attributed. But the main thing that we got after was the fact that at the end of the day, even the best of kings on this earth pale in comparison to the one king, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so this morning, um, as we continue to press into this series on preaching of, and through Advent, we're, we're singing a song, one song, one song of Advent. And as we do, we're looking at lots of songs that we all love, and we value, and we treasure, and we look at the theologically robust nature and theology that comes out of many of those songs. And so last week, we began our series by taking a, a, a little bit of a deep dive at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And we did something last week that I probably won't do with the remainder of this series, which we kind of took it verse by verse because it has such, rich, has such a rich wealth of biblical witness and theological witness to what we are hoping and what we're clinging to as God's people and what Advent should be reminding us of. It, it's a song that stands as a comprehensive biblical witness, a comprehensive theology of all that we hope for in, in Christ during these days. And so we looked at our longing, the dark night we, uh, we, we talk about, the, the long, hard winter that we talked about last week. It, it, it calls us to take a good, honest, and be honest about the fact that this is the world we live in. These are the lives that we live, that we live in very difficult life that we, as we wait between the two advents, as we live in this time in between. But then the, he doesn't just leave us there in that first song, in that first verse. He, he proceeds to place our hope rightly into the first and second coming of our King Jesus, which what we are going to explore further this morning, which is number one in this first advent, and we're going to really explore this a little bit more in depth this morning, is that he comes as an in in inaugural king. He announces that kingdom. We'll, we'll get into that a little more further. But then as we are, he has announced his kingdom and we have now placed our faith in him, we look forward to his consummate kingdom, kingdom, right? That he's a king that will bring finality to all that God has planned and, and, and since the garden or since actually before the garden. And then what we'll do after that is we'll focus in more and more on the fact that this king next week is our deliverer. And then the following week that our king is our comforter. And we saw all of that in some way in four verses last week from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So this morning we're going to talk more about the kingly office of Jesus and why we need to be regularly and routinely reminded of his kingship, especially in the days in which we live. Yes? 
And the reason we do this is because just consider the headlines of the last year or two. May I, may I take a moment and share with you some of those things. We have know here recently of the Palestinian terror attack and the unfolding war there. And our hearts grieve the fact that 70% of the life lost were women and children. It's a grievous reality. But aside from the politics of it all, the reality is, is that people are suffering needlessly. Tensions in Ukraine, though, you know, I don't know when really talks about their Ukrainian war anymore, do they? What's going on there? But we know that there's been this tension between Russia and all their border states, border nations, and uh, former, former USSR nations, and, uh, and, and it broke out with the Ukrainian war last year. But, 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 but you know, some lesser-known ones might be out there for you. Do you know that, that Syria has been in a civil war since 2011? And in that civil war, there's been multiple factions that have risen up, including the Syrian government, and they put down and rebel groups and all kinds of different things that have happened during that this last 13 or 12 years or so. The Yemeni civil war, the Ethiopian civil conflict, these are all active things that are happening in our world. Afga Afghanistan, tensions in the South Sea between China and Thailand. And not only are we talking about wars and and, and military conflicts, we also need to consider the fact that we live in a world that has uh, seemingly infinite examples of corruption among kings and magistrates and politicians across the world. Whatever you might think about our current context here in America, let me remind you of a few other things. Haiti has been under a multi, has faced so much political turmoil and government corruption and economic struggles. Uh, Venezuela, particularly economic struggles there. Burma, I have, we have players that play on Astro soccer team who are refugees from Burma due to political unrest there since 2021. Belarus, we're well familiar with. I was there on ground a couple years ago. Got to meet with some pastors and encourage them during that time. One pastor is actually in the process, I think this morning, getting ready to cross the border in Mexico because he got kicked out of Belarus. And he's heading to Maine to be under the care of a sister church there. Lebanon, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Ethiopia. I mean, these are all examples of what we might call the, maybe the, the lead, the chief of government and, and corruption in our world. Ethical and moral ideals, though, also play a huge part in the world in which we live in. In the debates in this modern age, consider the fact of just the, the debate between environmentalism and climate change and all the politics that go on there and all the fear that is existing in our world about the, where our world's going. Regardless, again, where we stand on these kinds of things, I think most of us realize we're not, you know, we, the world we have has limited resources. And it is because our Lord has designed it as such until his power rules and reigns over that final new heavens and new earth. Care of the poor and the oppressed across their globe is at an all-time high, as we would imagine. Persistent poverty and income issues and, and inequality in various aspects across nations. And we think about the debates that spring out when it comes to these kinds of things. Healthcare, pandemics, government overreach. 
human rights violations of, of, of significant depth, technology and ethics of technology, right? I mean, what are we going to do with AI, right? I don't, am I the only one who's just a little bit scared and has a little bit of like, uh, of um, uh, what's the uh, robot? Terminator. Yeah, I got a little Terminator fear going on here with AI. I'm not going to lie to you. It's okay. You can, you're going to be able to rest after this is over with, hopefully. Uh, and of course, then in our nation, migration and refugees, but this is not just restricted to America. This is happening all over the global world where people are fleeing hardship in various ways or corrupt governments and they're coming into uh, nations like ours for respite. Now I can imagine if you hear all that list of things that I just unfolded for you and you want you might be tempted to do a couple of different things. Number one, I would imagine you say, Pastor, I need a minute. All right, that's a lot to take in. And I can hear you and I, and I echo that. But I bring those things to our attention this morning, not to send you run into your counselor's office this coming week, right? But I bring those to our attention this morning so that it might stir us out of our kind of typical myoptic approach to life. Where we either do one of two things, we either seek to assuage our fears and our desperations and our depressions by, by escaping into what we would consider our relative ease here in America, our, our relative comfort, our distance from some of those issues. Or the other side of the coin might be we cause us to think that our issues can simply be resolved or reduced to nationalistic policies wherever, whatever nation we may be a part of and for us, particularly here in America. And I just want to ask you to go stop. They cannot be resolved merely by human policy and human efforts. These are way bigger. They're way beyond our control um, and we need to be reminded, and I think Advent's a great time to be reminded of, uh, to return to our one true king, Jesus, who, who rules and he reigns with perfect justice and perfect equity where the world does not do these things, who will come again to set all things right in his good timing. And so how does this season of Advent and the traditional church calendar show us, us about the, what does it show us about the reign of Christ as we, lived, as we live in this oftentimes dreadfully discouraging, dare I say depressing day that we get in front of us? Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, Christ has come. And we said this last week, and he's coming again. He has come first as our humble servant king in the first advent. Oh, but he will come gloriously again as our conquering warrior king. And so his kingship matters. It is an anchor for our souls, brothers and sisters. And so we're going to do like we did last week, and, and, and we don't really have one text that we will unpack this morning like we typically do where we exposit a text of Scripture. We're going to be looking, as I said last week, a lot of Scripture a lot of different things and things you're going to want to jot down if you want to go back and look at these later in more detail or more devotionally in some capacity. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three questions. Three questions concerning the kingly office of Christ this morning. And the goal that I have when we're all done is that our souls, our souls will be lifted. 
And then our souls will be rest in the one who holds us in his very hand. That's my goal. So the first question, the first place that we're going to start is the biblical testimony of Christ's kingly office. Let's just mine the depths of so many wonderful scriptures and so many wonderful things that we see given to us. We talked this morning, Josh did wonderfully in our time about the sufficiency of scripture, the authority of scripture, the clarity of scripture that we talked about this morning. And I just want to say a hearty amen to that and how wonderful it is to have that on the backdrop of what we're going to look at this morning and some multiplicity of, the, of, of all the scriptures that God has given us concerning the kingly office of Jesus. First, let's consider the prophecies that the Old Testament has given us. Now, we could look at a lot of texts, but we're going to look at two specifically and make a couple of brief comments. Number one, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Hear this, church. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of His government, and of the peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David, and over His kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice, and with righteousness, from this time forth, and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's our hope. It's a prophecy that ran before Jesus here, and we find that Jesus is the answer. He is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. We mentioned this text last week. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness. When we talk about righteousness, we are talking about equity. You know that, right? What is right? And good, what, is, what are the balances of all that is good? He will bring justice and righteousness in the land. And, his days of, and in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Not only do we have prophecies in the Bible, we have genealogies. Two particularly from Matthew and from Luke that show us, the, the, the emphasize the royal ancestry and the fulfillment of Jesus as the one who descends from all the promises of the Old Testament. Matthew 1.17, I will, I, will, I will go there and read it briefly for us. Matthew 1, 7, uh, 1, 1 through 17, excuse me. Let me get over here to it. I'm actually just going to uh, hit verse 12 because it goes through the, the, the genealogy and all of its depth, okay, right there. But and after the deportation to Babylon, verse 12, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor, and Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok was the father of Achim, and Achim was the father of Iliad, Iliud, and Iliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, and whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham, because it starts with Abraham, I should have noted that earlier, started with Abraham to David, 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, the Christ 
to Christ 14 generations. The point is, they drive all of this royal lineage back to who? Abraham. Now, why would that be significant? Because God cuts a covenant with Israel during this time, and this is a signal that the fulfillment of that covenant, the fulfillment of all that God promises, where he will bless all the peoples of the earth, would be through this man, this babe who is going to be born here in just a chapter over, or later in this chapter, he would be the one who would fulfill all of those promises in Abraham. But it's even more than that, because when we look at Luke chapter uh, 3, Luke chapter 3, verses uh, 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 20, what we got here, 23 through 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of, um, I'm sorry, the son of uh, Heli, and the son of Mathot, and he goes all the way down. Let me just jump on down here to get to the punchline, right? Look at verse 36, the son of Canaan, the son of um, Ar- 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 I'm sorry, Arphasak, Aksad, excuse me, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, and the son of Mahaliel, and the son of Canaan, and the son of Enos, the son of Seth, and the son of who? Adam. So where are we getting at here? Not only do we have prophecies of these things, these genealogies set for us, so they are an authoritative aspect of how they enter into the, the, the gospel uh, declaration of who Jesus is, and they are pointing us back to the good doctor in, in Luke, to Jesus' lineage. It goes all the way back to Adam, that promised seed that would crush the serpent's head and his reign over the earth. So we see right here in the New Testament who this king is. Let's continue on. Consider the, the New Testament and all that it emphatically declares the <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> kingly office of Jesus. In the New Testament, Jesus is referred to the king of kings in many places. And the Lord of lords, not the least of which is in Revelation 19, verse 16. He is acknowledged as a king by various individuals, considering the Magi who came from a long way off and came, into, um, came to, to Jerusalem, and they're asking, where is the king of the Jews? Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Jesus himself confirms his kingship, confirms his kingship there in, um, in John with Pilate, who asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And let's just read that for a moment. Chapter 18. Verses 33 to the end. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, I, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If this would have been, um, if, I'm sorry, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But, by, but my kingdom is not of the, from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And of course, Pilate with his arrogance says what is truth. 
So you have the witness of the New Testament that talks about his kingly office, even the witness from uh, Jesus' own lips about his, this kingly office. So though, but, but more than his kingly office, it talks about the kingdom that he comes to rule and reign. He frequently spoke of, Jesus did, in the parables uh, about the kingdom of God and the principles and the nature and the, and the arrival of the kingdom in the hearts of his people. Matthew 13, 31 through 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is a direct vision Jesus is helping them see as now he is inaugurating this kingdom. This seed has been planted a long, long, long time ago of this kingdom. And it has been growing and steadily throughout all these promises we've seen read throughout the Old Testament. And now he comes, and now the kingdom is now inaugurated, and birds of the air come. And that's a picture of the fact now all creation will come and find its rest in this kingdom of God. Mark 1, 14 through 15. Now, after Jesus was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. In other words, all the Old Testament that's been talking about me is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There is a wonderful reality of what you and I live in. This is the, this is the substance of all those who live in the, under the kingdom of God today. Number one, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is, again, as I've said before, it's the inauguration of the kingdom. And, the, and those who would be kingdom citizens have to do what? Repent and believe in the gospel. So if you want to know what our role is here today as a church, it is not in any shape or form to usher in a golden age. It is to proclaim the kingdom by calling people to repentance and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only means by which they can be saved. Luke 17 20 through 21 continues this and jesus is saying being asked by the pharisees when the kingdom of god would come he answered them the kingdom of god is not coming in ways that can be observed nor will they say look here it is or there for behold the kingdom of god is in the midst of you so in other words it is revealed to those who believe those who god has drawn to himself for the people that god has been has set his affections upon to save from the from foundation of the world past and then you think about the crucifixion and the resurrection and what it says concerning the kingdom. Because there on this cross, the, the centurions mocked him as king of the Jews, right? And then they had no idea what was about to unfold just three days later. And how that resurrection ratifies his victory over sin and death and establishes that eternal reign and kingship. This is what Paul gets at in 1 Corinthians 20 through 28. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. It's a great declaration where everyone is subjected to death because of Adam's rebellion against God. Jesus in Jesus, a new humanity arises. It lives within the resurrection power of Jesus and now experiences a resurrection one day to come. And we may be made alive because now he has come to fulfill all that God has commanded. And then, of course, the teaching in the Bible and the New Testament about his ascension 
and there's a promised return, Revelation 11, uh, Revelation 11, 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and forever and forever. The biblical testimony is one story. Just like we're singing one song, brothers and sisters, this, this Advent season, to portray and reveal that Jesus is the promised king who, who, who fulfills all that God requires and that he establishes an eternal kingdom that's already been in play, but now he reveals that kingdom to all, and he reigns over all creation. So that is the, just a snapshot, brothers and sisters, of the wonderful biblical witness to the kingly office of Jesus. Now consider the second question. What is the character of this kingly office of Christ? What is the character of this king of Christ's kingly office? We can see a number of things. A few more listed in your guide there. We'll cover four or five. The Bible tells us that this king is a servant king. He is otherworldly. He is the antithesis of all of what people would think about kingdoms who have power and military might. He is a servant king. He demonstrated servant leadership by teaching humility and selflessness serving others. We, we know the texts like John 13 where he washed his disciples' feet. We know of texts like Mark 10 where he, he taught that the greatness, that greatness comes through what? Serving and through humility. And he demonstrates that by being the suffering servant who serves us in our most intimate of what needs. Isaiah 53, 1 through 12. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look upon him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. But he has pierced our transgressions, pierced for our transgressions. He, he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This is how he serves us. With his wounds. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. That's the kind of king we need. See, Israel got tired of being the little guy in the pool. And so they wanted a king like the other nation's kings. And God says, you will not be happy with the consequences of kings like this. And every king after that failed, yes? Every last one of them. Even the greatest among Israel, David, failed. No, this king is the opposite of that. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like a sheep that was before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And, for, and as, for his gener, as for his generation, he who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. 
And I'm just going to jump on down to verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Praise be to Jesus. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. And so he's a servant king. Secondly, he's a compassionate king. He shows deep compassion towards those of lowly estate. So you and I don't believe that, do we? We still feel like we have to muster up something in us that makes us spiritual or makes us worthy or lovable, but Jesus is in his compassion, comes to us in our lowliest state. He comes to us in our sicknesses, whether they're physical sicknesses or mental sicknesses or any other kind of sicknesses that we may face in this world. He comes to us as when we are outcasts. Why? Because he is the outcast king. Who is better to come to us than the outcast king? To have compassion is to stand with and to be present with the lowly. So numerous texts in the Gospels talk about him healing the sick, yes? Mark 14 is a good example. Numerous texts in Scripture, Matthew 15, he fed the hungry, he feeds the hungry. But nothing is more supreme than what we find in Luke 19, that he welcomes sinners. For the Son of Man came not to seek, let me say, sorry, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He's a servant king. He's a compassionate king. He is a righteous king. Because this is important. I mentioned it earlier, being the second Adam. Jesus upholds all righteousness in himself. He fulfills the law and the prophets. We see this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, the law still stands. No, I have come to ab- not to abolish them, but to fulfill them and he is the embodiment of all that is what adam should have been of what justice and righteousness and mercy and love should be consider matthew uh, 23 and jesus and i won't go through all this is a lot of texts here he's speaking to the scribes and the pharisees he gives them seven woes Before he does so, the reason why, this is what he indicts them with. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do observe whatever um, they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens that, that are hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others but you are not to be called rabbi for you are one for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven neither be called instructors for you have one instructor which is Christ the greatest among you shall be your servant whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be Exalted, And so then he gives them all the woes of those and how they fall through. And the first of those woes is because they shut up the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Why? Because they cannot live justly. They cannot live righteously like Jesus has lived. 
He is the sovereign king. He is our sovereign king. He possesses ultimate authority and he possesses ultimate power over all of creation. We see this in Matthew 28, right? Right? For no, right? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus' own testimony. And that's important for us to remember now. Though his kingdom is, a, in one sense, an invisible kingdom, known only to those who are the redeemed, the others reject and deny that kingdom exists, he is nonetheless, has all authority and power over all creation. Why can he do this? Because he alone can forgive sins. Mark 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his, in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to a paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to, to say, rise and take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise and pick up your bed and go home. In other words, if you're more entertained by the lesser miracle, let me just give you the lesser miracle so that maybe you might be persuaded that I actually do have authority to forgive sins. He calms storms. Mark 4, you know this. And isn't that just the wonderful picture of the fact that only Jesus can calm the storms of your heart this morning, brothers and sisters? Why do you continually reject God's calm and comforting presence in your life and submit yourself to the ongoing storms that you allow yourself to be shaken by? No, he forgives sins and he calms the storms of our heart. And then last, he's our eternal king. Jesus' kingship. We've already talked about promised king, so I won't go there on your guide. But he's our eternal king. Jesus' kingship is eternal and transcends time. We see this in John 1, that he existed before creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And the Word is, was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. His name is Jesus. Not only is he eternal, but he reigns eternally forever. Revelation 11.15. Revelation 11.15. Just read that for us. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there loud voices, I said this a minute ago, saying, The kingdom of heaven has become the kingdom of the Lord, and, his Christ, and, and of his Christ he shall reign forever and ever. This is what we were reminded of just a few moments ago. That's the character of the king that you and I serve. No other king compares to that king. So then what then, third question, what should be the effect of Christ's kingly office upon his church, upon us here this morning? If we reflect upon Christ's first and second advent correctly and situate ourselves correctly within that hope, it will prevent us from under-realizing our hope in Christ and over-realizing what the church is supposed to do in this time. And we will now live between these two great advents. And we understand that Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God was at hand, which means, as I mentioned earlier, this is where I want us to go back to that idea, there is an inaugural aspect of the realized in Christ at his first advent. 
In other words, when he says it's at hand, he came, to be a, came in humble service, as I've already mentioned, to a people of his own choosing to gather them from all the nations. That is his kingdom being revealed today. As we go and evangelize the nations and we support missionaries, i.e., fifth Sunday month, we can do this. We can be a part of that wonderful story. That's how the Lord reveals his kingdom through precious souls converted to Jesus. And we can play a part in that, yes. To, to, to put all of our attention upon the humble service of his people, to his people, and he, by, by us recognizing that we point to him who called us out of darkness and sin. That he has bound Satan in this life. Satan still, I said her last week, is, is doing going about creating chaos here and there. But he is not one who has omnipotent and omniscient and, and on, a, a power or strength or knowledge. He does not. He reigns, Jesus does, spiritually as he ransoms people from sin and death. And Satan has no power to stop it. Did you know that? Like when we share the gospel, do you understand Satan has no power to stop him converting precious souls to him? When Peter comes to him and he asks Peter, what do the people say to him? He says, and Peter says, I say to you, we say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says what? I, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not yeah, stand against it. Can't do it. And so we can rightly say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and 16, death, where is your sting? It doesn't exist anymore. Oh, we might feel the scrapes and the bruises in this long, dark night, but there is no sting. There is no victory. And we'll explore more of that deliverance next week. So I'll just pause that thought for a second. But even as we are now in this inaugural aspects of this kingdom rule of Jesus, we must be remembered that in this night, as we said earlier in our candle lighting, there is yet a consummated realities of that kingdom that are yet to be fully revealed. And they're reserved for that second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will come again as that conquering king and he'll put the final word as the word on death sin and destruction he will be the final end of their reign he will put all vestiges of sin and justice human rebellion and evil to death this means jesus reigns fully now and he reigns fully then it's to understand the kingdom properly and understanding christ's kingship and his kingly office properly we must Rest our hopes properly in the already realities of Jesus' kingship and the not yet realities of Jesus' kingship. So the conclusion to the matter for us is this. What do we take away from this? What should be the effect of this on our lives? Let me give you a couple. We need to confess, number one, some much-needed truths this morning. Brother and sister, take these to heart. One, he controls who becomes king and who doesn't. Don't fret yourself over kings and princes, magistrates. Don't fret yourself for them. Jesus is fully sovereign over every 
square inch of the world. He regulates what those kings do. He does. Sometimes he holds them back from evil. Sometimes he orders their acts in intentional ways to further his purposes. And we know, we, we know, we know, we understand so little of the mystery of that, do we not? He has authority to claim citizens for his kingdom from all the nations and states on the earth. And I said earlier, Satan can't stop him. He will triumph and bring all his saving purposes to victory. And lastly, Christ is ordering the world. Oh, church, please believe this. He's ordering the world right now for the good of the church. Nothing has stopped the church this thus far, and nothing will stop the church until he returns. Keep preaching the gospel. Keep your eyes focused on the mission. Not these side missions. No, the mission. Not futile, sorry if I offend some people here, not futile Christendom efforts. Those are not the commission of God. The mission of God is to, the kingdom of God is a hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's how God reveals his kingdom. Let's keep doing it. Let's not get sidetracked with all this other nonsense. That's the first thing. Beholding those truths, reconciling ourselves to those truths, confessing those truths afresh again this morning. And then two, we need to learn to obey in some much-needed ways because of those truths. One, since Jesus is the much long-awaited-for priestly warrior king that we all need, we must bow down and submit to him as our supreme sovereign over all the affairs of our life. Right now. Stop thinking you can outplay God and outmaneuver God. Stop twisting God's word to meet your own needs. Don't do that. Repent, bow down, submit to him as your supreme sovereign over all the affairs of your life. If all those truths are true about he is in charge of kings and kingdoms and all of what they do, you and I can now rightly bow and submit to him as our sovereign king over all the affairs of our life, brothers and sisters. Two, if he is the much long-awaited, and we, as we would say, since he is the much long-awaited for priest, warrior, king, we must trust and rest in him in the midst of the madness of this life. Again, I am the king sometimes in my life of manipulating things to fit what I want to do. And Jesus says, stop that. Rest in me. Trust me in the midst of this madness. I've got this. I've got this. And three, since he is the much long-awaited priest, warrior, king, we must, and friends, I've said it once, we must declare him to the world and call every tongue and every knee to bow to him. It's not our job whether or not they do it or not. It's not our job to manipulate systems and societies in order for that to happen. 
That is not our job, but we are, have a job to declare him to the world, to send missionaries to every nook and cranny of this world, to plant churches in this very county, the fastest growing county in the state of Tennessee. We need that. There are people in this room who should not, if the Lord wills this church to continue to grow, should not be here five years from now because you have went out and you've helped us plant another new church in this county or in this area. So obeying him in much-needed ways because of those truths are true. That's what God would call us to. And so this morning as we finish up and we prepare ourselves for um, the Lord's table together, my heart is that what we have discussed here this morning would, be, would resonate with you with such joy that as you come to this table, you know you're coming to the feast that has been prepared for you by your king. And if you're a believer this morning, that is your privilege to partake in. Amen? Let us pray and let's prepare ourselves for the table. Jesus, help us this morning as we come. Your church to come and trust you, Jesus, this morning. Those who have believed and confessed and followed you, Lord, would you just be at work in our hearts and bring true joy in our hearts in these days. And as we do, God, help us to submit to you to rest in you, and to proclaim you wherever you take us. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.